This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. It's been said by about a gazillion people that knowledge is power. Presidents, politicians, and parents, and just regular people have uttered this phrase often. We use it for motivation and inspiration, as in knowledge, get some. It was the knighted philosopher Francis Bacon in the late 17th century who served Queen Elizabeth I who first uttered these famous, often repeated words, knowledge is power. Using this phrase as his foundation, Lord Bacon developed what is now known to us as the scientific method. This method has guided and continues to impact how we acquire knowledge and use it. Whether it is a scientist or engineers at NASA calculating and planning a trip to Mars, or researchers trying to help us understand everything from the finite to the infinite, the scientific method is used to help gain knowledge. Why? Because knowledge is powerful. A new study published by the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan reveals insights about the screening and referral of food insecure patients as a key strategy in helping people become food secure. Today on our show, our own Dr. Dawn Opal returns to help us understand at a greater level how the knowledge physicians have gained can help connect food insecure families to the resources they need. Knowledge is power, and Dawn is helping us become smarter by the minute. Come back and join us in just a minute. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us. As promised, Jerry Prasan is in the studio, and with us, Jerry, is Dr. Dawn Opal, our own uh, general counsel and director of strategic initiatives at the Food Bank Council. Dawn, welcome back to Food First Michigan. Thanks. It's always a pleasure to be here. Does she have the record now? The record for number of times being a guest? I, I Absolutely. She beat out Rob Fowler. Oh, definitely. <laughs> In I'm so many ways. And Carrie Calvert, did she beat out Carrie Calvert? Yes. <laughs> when do we get our jacket? That's yeah, it. Uh, that's right, <laughs> right. That that that's that's coming up soon. I've I've got them I've I've got them ordered. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dawn, you're here with us today, and your capacity um, of the work you do at the Food Bank Council, which um, it was just a few years ago that we sat and dreamed about this work and this position and what it could mean for the populations across the state, people who are struggling, particularly older senior citizens who are struggling with food insecurity. And some of the work that you've discovered that I mentioned in the monologue um, from the Center for Health and Research Transformation is is cutting edge. So why don't you introduce that study to us and, and let's dive in. 
Sure, I'm really excited to talk about it. I got I had the benefit of being able to spend a year at Chart at the center, and uh, and I'm familiar with the work that they do there. And I'm just really glad that um, that this was released this week, uh, which is a survey of Michigan physicians, and uh, particularly the the brief that that was released this week by Chart talks about what Michigan physicians' knowledge is of uh, of social needs partners to screen and refer to when patients uh, come to them um, experiencing uh, various uh, needs for social interventions like housing, food, transportation, etc. And so uh, this brief that was released this week or on June 30th uh, talks a little bit about what are called the social determinants of health, which I know we've talked about on the show several times, but um, really looking at those um, factors that affect our health that are related to where we work, live, and play, uh, including food, housing, transportation, et cetera. And what they found is that um, is that there has been quite a bit of improvement in the ways that physicians understand these social determinants of health and also their ability to screen for them um, and try to understand where patients are at and, uh, and get a better sense of what's needed in order uh, to help uh, patients, but that there still remain um, several opportunities. And in fact, there is um, there are several recommendations in the report that are tied to the so what of after a physician screens a patient for uh, the social determinants of health, what do we do then and how does this affect health care? How does it affect the patient? Um, and what is this? what are the systems that we need in Michigan to make all this happen? So I want to just, you know, round out a little bit of the conversation around the social determinants of health. So, so when you look at where money in health care is spent and what actually causes health problems, Right. What you find is that 80 percent of what causes health problems isn't where any money is spent. But 20 percent of of what actually can be helpful, which is the treatment side. Right. Is where 90 percent of the money is spent. Right. So the social determinants of health are trying to turn that around. They're saying, look, 80 percent of the reason we have to manage these health problems is because there's things happening in our homes and in our life, which is causing our health to be poorer than it could be. And and so we say, well, if we spent a little bit of money to fix those things, it would save a whole lot of money on the treatment side of the equation, right? And so you start looking at where, how should we be addressing the health needs of our community? And you look at the numbers and you look at the cost and you say, well, it's pretty compelling that we ought to be addressing some of these social determinants of health, those things in healthcare that are part of our life that aren't part of the traditional treatment for people when they go into a doctor's office and need help. Right. I mean, does that capture it well enough in terms of kind of thinking about why do people even care about the social determinants of health? I mean, because it has a huge impact and we're not addressing it with nearly enough resources based on the impact that it would have if we did address it. That's right. But I think it's also important to mention that this is a huge shift in the way we think about clinical health care. So the idea for, uh, you know, a couple hundred years has been that what would what would now be called the social determinants were previously really called public health, that, you know, that access to clean water, to sanitation, transportation, um, living in a food desert, those are all 
all things that public health should handle and clinical care should be focused on the individual. That, that truly that when you go in to see a doctor, it's the patient and the doctor and the choices that you make uh, individually uh, are going to be affected by what that doctor tells you to do. And so I think that the social determinants of health really do shift that um, that narrative in really important ways to say that, you know, doctor, it doesn't really matter what I do. You know, I can take these pills. I can try to, you know, but when you say lose 20 pounds, that that is a very, very difficult situation for me to unpack given where I am in my life and where I live and where, you know, what I have, what resources I have access to. And that just really opens up a whole can of worms that really complicates the way we've always thought about clinical care. I can say this. If my doctor, if I walked in and told my doctor I lost 20 pounds, she'd say, well, you're about a third of the way there, pal. (laughs) 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 But all that to say, it is complicated, right? Right. It and, and life is complicated and it's not simple. And that's why this research is so important, because it starts to help us understand better what are the things we can do that have an impact and what are the things that we can do that really and truly change people's lives. And I will say this about food banking. One of the biggest things that has changed in food banking in the generation that I've been involved is the way we think about our work. And we know that we have to make a difference for for individuals and households. And we've got to be able to talk about what difference it makes when you give people food. This particular type of research, working in partnership with healthcare, is really important to our understanding of why food matters beyond today. And it does matter. We say frequently that giving people food today does more than just feed them today. It helps in a, in a number of ways. We talk about the household impact model and, and the economic help and the stability and, it, and the health improvements and the empowerment that it gives people. But, but when it comes to how do you get systems to change, you need research like this. So, so tell us more about the research. What else? What, what are the key points and, and how can we learn from it? Sure. So I think that some of the key points, one that it really took my breath away was thinking about when we saw increases in referral capacity to uh, to particular social needs providers. And what the study says is that when there is a program that physicians know about that is funded, they have a greater tendency to refer people to them. So so what, what logical you, you for know, sure. it, it does make sense that when um, that when there is a solution to a problem, people are more willing to investigate the options and actually put labor toward the, toward that solution. And I think that that's um, been something that's really uh, been difficult for us is that we've been really focused on screening, that if we could just screen everyone in primary care, then we'd know what the problems are. Then we, then we could figure out what the solutions could be after that. Well, the fact of the matter is that people are less likely to screen patients if they don't know what the solution is. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, I remember the first conversation I ever had with a nurse in a clinical setting, and she said to me, Jerry, I don't want to ask if they're food insecure, because what if they are? Am I going to say, well, thanks for letting me know. See you tomorrow. 
I mean, how, how 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 can you live with yourself, right? And so it's a really awkward position for people on the front line to be in when they know someone has a problem and there's nothing they can do about it. And they talk about lots of structural reasons why that would be the case that um, that you know that there just isn't bandwidth in primary care practices often to go chase down that solution. And so that means that we've got to policy wise create pathways that make that easier for primary care physicians. And the second thing I would say about that too is that they talk about how specialty practices really are still far behind on this. And that often when you're dealing with um, chronic care issues like diabetes, um, kidney disease, liver you know, failure, chronic health, uh, chronic heart failure. These are specialists that are going to be working with these patients, and they're the ones that really need to learn more about about how to engage with social needs that could prevent that escalation of that chronic disease. We're going to pick this up on the other side of this break. This is a new study published by the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan. That's Dr. Dawn Opal, Jerry Basson, and myself, Dr. Phil Knight. We're back in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with our guest, leading guest. Been on the show more often than anyone else, Dr. Dawn Opal. So, Dawn, um, we're talking about this new study from the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan. And you spent some time with these folks, and, and, and so you feel pretty confident in this research and, and, and what it means and, and, and some of the findings that impact our work. Yes, I think it's really fantastic. And yes, I loved, I was a faculty fellow there in their policy fellowship program, which is great. Um, and I am really thrilled that they have had an opportunity to survey over a couple thousand providers because I do think that it helps us with what what physicians are seeing on the inside of their clinics and what is what is affecting their ability to screen and refer um, on their end. So it's it's really good research in that sense that we see the strides that have been made toward trying to screen more and more folks. But what you know what, what some of the the hindrances are, what the opportunities are for the future to improve um, their ability to really connect their patients to social needs interventions. And this is a Michigan study. Yes, this is a Michigan study. Absolutely. So I think that's noteworthy for our audience here that sometimes there might be a study that's happened in Colorado or California or something, but this is a, a Michigan-based study with physicians here. The other thing, too, that the, the word that circles back here is, and I, I think we're going to cover this at some point during the show today, but at the, you know, it's one thing to screen and it's one thing to refer, you know, but there's got to be somebody to refer to, right? And 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 I, something that we talked about on the show years ago, Jerry, when we first started getting involved with the Root Cause Coalition, was, you know, like, this can't just be a problem that gets dumped on to charity, on to community-based organization, that everybody has a part to play in this solution. Now, how much of a part? I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave that to you two to figure out. Y'all are sm- smarter than me, but, but it, it can't be something that just pushed off onto the community to have to sort through. Well, if the community had the resources, you could do that. 
right? And I think it's one of the misconceptions in in many times when people deal with uh, a social determinant like food is they say, oh, well, you've got the food banks out there and they've got all the food, so we'll just refer people to the food banks and they'll give them the food. The the problem with that is that we don't have any extra food, <laughs> right? I mean, everything that we have is is spoken for and then some, right? The, the only time in the history of food banking that we actually met the food need in our community was during the pandemic when there was an outpouring of support, significant government support, significant foundation and corporate support, and significant individual support. Even though it was a record-breaking amount of food everywhere in the state of Michigan, we could meet the need. But it takes resources to meet the need, right? Now, when you start looking at at the number of people in that that are potentially food insecure who are engaged with health care, it, it, it's a pretty big number of people. Just in the five counties that Gleaner served, there's over 700,000 people on Medicaid, right? 700,000 people is a big number. So when you start talking about, okay, so Medicaid is, a, is for low-income uh, people, right? And so the odds of, of food insecurity are higher than the general population by a margin or so, right? So a fairly good percentage of them might need a referral for food. Well, <laughs> I mean, we served 420,000 people in 2019. All right. During the pandemic, we're still getting the numbers. It was so crazy. You know, all the mobiles and everything, we're, we're putting that together. We should have it at some point in the next year. But you say, wow, that's a big lag. But it just takes time to figure out, right? When you're when your nose to the grindstone and, and running as hard as you can, you're not thinking about, I'm going to need these numbers later. You're just trying to get people food, right? In any case, 700,000 is, you know, you start thinking about, well, that's that's you know, not quite twice as many as you served prior to the pandemic, but that's those are the kind of numbers you're talking about. So figuring out how to pay for this is a really important question. Um, and that's one of the reasons why these studies are so important to us. When you realize that, yeah, it does cost something to provide this food, but the savings are significant enough that it could it could really cover the entire cost of the of the providing of that benefit in the health benefits in the utilization improvements and in the other ways that people would need less of the healthcare system if they had the food they needed and I think it's important to mention, too, that um, community-based organizations like food banks have not traditionally been part of healthcare payer networks. So, you know, to be treated like a care partner, if we really want to understand what the relationship is between the food and the healthcare, we have to look a lot more like a pharmacy or a specialist that a, that a doctor would work with, you know, to, to refer in other ways. So when you make a referral to an ear, nose, and throat specialist, or you make a, re- or you write a prescription for a medication, there are pathways that are dedicated to that connecting the care and following up. And that costs a lot of money. And so one of the findings of this Michigan Physician Survey is that those kinds of supports, community-based organizations have to have them in order to be um, an equal care partner. Um, And that's just something that the community-based organizations, because we're so excited to help and we want to get in there and, you know, we're so excited to be be partners with healthcare. We've absorbed a lot of those costs on our own, and you know, you would not expect you know a, a, a care partner in another context to do that kind of work, um, building the infrastructure essentially to be able. It's like a pay-to-play situation. 
Yeah. Well, I would say uh, it's it's very encouraging to have the University of Michigan uh, really putting a lot into understanding from the providers, well, what is actually happening out there and, and what is the point of view of the providers so that we can all get better at what it's going to take to solve these problems. Well, I think that the survey talks a lot about working with older Michiganders and about the particular needs that exist there because I I, I wanted to make sure that we mentioned that um, because I think that one of the one of the things that is noted in the study is that social isolation and lack of caregiver support prevents you know prevents care support in ways that we can't even get to the food if there's not if there is a barrier to connecting the patient to that food because they absolutely Absolutely, are isolated uh, from the rest of the world, mm. and so, so, so one of the like largest calls to action at the end of the survey is really is really trying to identify those resources that are going to be that glue, um, which indicates another sort of link in the chain that's needed is not only you know being able to receive that food, but also as older adults age, they often have limited functionality, you know, functional mobility to be able to prepare food, etc., and it requires additional care. Um, and providers mentioned in um, the survey that they really struggle to find that service for people. Yeah, it's a huge issue. In mm. fact, it's the issue when when the Food Bank Council of Michigan just did their own survey of, of seniors and what seniors need and what's available to help them. One of the stunning findings, at least to me, I was stunned, was the more help a senior needs as they as they as they get more health problems and, and lose mobility and they actually need more services, the actual services that they can take advantage of decreases, right? And, and you know, for me, this is like so sad. I mean, when you, you know, you think of your own grandparents and walking through their life with them and, and you would hope that as they got older and less able that they would have more services, Right. And they'd be more cared for. But in fact, that's not what happens, that the, the older people get and the more services they need, the less care they actually get in order for them just to manage their life. And that's so that's so hard. It is. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's very difficult to age in place nowadays. We really want people to stay independent and in their own homes for as long as possible. But the fact of the matter is those support services that allow people to stay in their homes just simply are not available at scale. And so that's why you see people um, and you see in the last 10, 20 years with the decrease in caregiver support, you know, family caregiver support, a huge rise in the number of folks that are going to institutional settings because that's just where the care is. And it's it's very interesting because that's not we would really love and I think everyone you know resoundingly says um, that they would prefer to stay home um, but they need food and transportation and you know all of these things to be able to do that so we really want to I think work together with providers to find answers to these problems I think one of the things to close out this section of the show here that that the study talks about is um, that community-based organizations like food banks uh, and our pantry network have the capacity to help meet this need, but what they don't have is the resources. And so they call for a change in how funds are distributed and how the funding mechanism to address the... But the thing I want to end on here is more Michigan physicians are aware of this problem in their patients 
and the need to screen and to refer. And that I, that's a conversation changer from just a few years ago when we talked about how physicians just don't know. They weren't trained in medical school to think like this, but now that's taken some root. And so I think we can, we can draw some encouragement from that. We'll talk about that encouragement on the other side of this break. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, Dr. Dawn Opal, Jerry Brisson. We're all three back in just a moment. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Thanks for listening, everyone. Glad you're with us. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Dawn Opal, our special guest, number one guest getting the jacket and everything. I'm Dr. <laughs> we got to look at those jackets and just see what they look like. Yeah, I bet we can find a good one. Yeah, I'm 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 in the design phase right you now. You know, so. I can see the profile of you, Dr. Phil, somehow as a patch on this jacket. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, aim higher is what I would say. Look, what this show, Dawn, you're with us today to talk about this uh this study published by the Center for Health and Research transformation at the University of Michigan. And I got to do this. So Marissa Werka, Karen Teske, and Melissa Reba are the principal researchers here. I want to say a thank you to those three for this work. And um, this is your world. This is research and something you are truly gifted at. I'm talking to Dawn, Jerry, not you. <laughs> so I, I just, you know, we got one segment left. I don't, I, I want to really maximize it if possible. What is it there that really grabs you and and your connection to this work to create a food secure Michigan? Well, I think that what I appreciated about about the way that the brief was written is that it really focused on the kinds of cross-sector collaborations that are really necessary, that part of what's complicated about this work and part of what I love so much about it is that no one stakeholder can solve it alone, but it really does take some ingenuity um, that crosses not just um, social services, clinical care, public health, community-based organizations. We all have a role to play in it. And I think we're all really trying to understand how to take models that were built in the 19th century and apply them to 21st century problems. And so and that's that's clearly, you know, what we're trying to sort of figure out here is how do we take the clinical model that's been around, you know, for a really, really long time and try to start to think about how we can take all of these other really complex systems and lay them on top of it and connect them to one another. So the focus on technology, the focus on communication, um, the focus on public policy and, and, mm-hmm. and private policy, I think, is really a fascinating dimensions to this. So this is a physician survey. Like we're, we're reading what a couple thousand physicians in 2021 in Michigan thought about this issue. But, this, but the, the solutions to these issues are so huge and complicated and involve so many actors in this really complicated system. And so for me, that's what I, I really appreciate about the brief is that it really does look at the way that funding mechanisms affect what physicians are able to do and not able to do in their own clinical practices. Wow. And we have to keep learning, 
right? I mean, it's one of the one of the tenets of the show from the very beginning. We believe that food insecurity is a solvable problem, but it's not going to be solved by one thing. It's going to be solved by bringing a lot of people to the table who have an interest, a vested interest even, in seeing it solved. And certainly we think that, and healthcare thinks, not just we, but we and healthcare agree that we have a vested interest in solving food insecurity to meet the to, to each of our needs, right? right? So so and then you bring in the other stakeholders as you were talking about Don. There's so many people that have a real and true interest in solving this, a, even a selfish interest, right? That it helps them save money, it helps them have better customers, it helps them have better employees, it helps, you know, helps the community thrive better if if kids are nourished and so on and so forth. And so I do think that the more we understand about the positive impact of solving food insecurity, the, the more it contributes to the solution. And so where does the money come from? That's complicated. I mean, we talked about the, the Medicaid program. It's, it's over $1.6 trillion in the federal budget, $1.6 trillion. So we know we have to spend money on health care. I mean, you've got another $100 billion in the SNAP program, and that's for food. Right. And so we know we have to spend money on these problems. If you're a taxpayer, you are already paying. Well, that's something you two have talked about. You know, I get to have conversations with you guys, you know, individually. And that's something you both say that this this work is being paid for already. I mean, it's somebody's paying for it. And your point is often that it's the taxpayer who's paying for it. Well, we know that clinical care, acute care is very, very expensive. And so when you look at a condition like diabetes, where preventative nutrition is such a huge part of what will eventually end up happening inside of clinical spaces, that is so expensive. And you look at that person 20 years earlier and think, you know, if they had been eating more produce and if there had been a way to expose, you know, uh, this patient to different dietary uh options that perhaps this never would have gone the way that it went. And this is where I think healthcare has to get a little bit more imaginative about the ways in which we introduce people to healthy food. And this is not just low income folks. I mean, this is really everybody. Um, you know, and I think that that's why mm. you see, for instance, the Medicare Advantage programs being so innovative when it comes to sort of what we call lifestyle medicine, that they're trying to figure out ways to meet people where they are and prevent very expensive clinical outcomes. Um, but, you know, but with Medicaid and and really just generally with healthcare, this is prevention has never been really where it's at. I mean, we have mm. never focused on that. Right. And so part of what with social determinants we're trying to get at is, can we address these social determinants before they become a very expensive clinical um, <laughs> health problem? And here's the reality, you know, people will make changes. People do make changes. Would you rather go to the hospital or to the grocery store. I mean, the bottom line is most people would rather grow, go to the grocery store. I mean, you know, and, and if you can tell them this is how you're going to, you know, manage this health thing, it's not because you're needy. It's because if you have healthy food and you utilize it, you're going to go to the grocery store instead of the hospital for a lot of years. And for some people, that could be 25, 30, 40 years, depending on if they have early onset diabetes or not. It is a huge life-changing 
thing for people if they see their their food as part of their treatment plan you know they, agree. they make changes totally agree totally agree but you brought it up would you rather go to the hospital or to the grocery store well maybe there's not either in their zip code yeah that's true too so access is a huge part and i think this is a vital role that the the food bank network can play and only the food bank network. But that's why it has to be one of Dawn's favorite phrases she's taught me is cross-sector collaborative partners. And I think together with the food and beverage industry, all the way from, you know, all the way to retail, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think and and I think what I've seen, um, I've attended a few food as medicine summits and really seen the way that the industry is trying to understand its role and the way that it can improve um, food healthy food access, um, and also really be involved in, you know, what is now being referred to as nutrition security, which is very popular right now with the USDA. And, um, you know, a lot, it's very politically popular to, to, to be thinking about not just food security, but also nutrition security, what food, you know, the quality of the food that's actually available um, in particular communities. And I think that that's something that we've all, you know, that corporate has a place, food and beverage has a place to play in that too. And we were just talking during the break about the ways in which retail is starting to get that transportation infrastructure going um, such that, you know, that if we can get in the same way that you can get Amazon Prime to your house at any moment, can we make sure that that can happen with healthy um, with healthy food? You know, once that infrastructure is in place, it should be available for everyone. And it's really just about the funding mechanism to make that happen. I believe it's going to happen. I really do. I mean, grocery are smart people. They, they know that to serve the community that can afford to pay, um, they're going to have to make these changes. They're going to have to make food more accessible to people at home because people want to order it at home and they're willing to pay for it. Well, then you have someone living next door who's food insecure. How do you pick them up is part of that process is a very inexpensive way to add value, right? And so I, I really do believe in, in the grocery industry. I think it's, it's good people who, who really do want to help. And I, and I do really look forward to the next, I would even say within a year, we're going to see substantial capacity improvements for grocery to help. And they and I think they want to help. So I'm eager to see that unfold. I don't have any specific announcements, but uh, I like the direction of the conversation. Last word, Dawn. What about this study? What's the last word? I think that this study um, and the, the responses from physicians have made me really optimistic about what's possible if we can just put the right mechanisms, like pull the right levers to get them what they need. That, that, that you know, that there's more will to participate in social determinants work than I would have expected um, without this uh, survey. And this is in Michigan. So what that says to me is that providers really want to help, but we've got to give them the structure and the support to be able to work with us on the community-based organization side to really make more impact. Excellent. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged too. I read the study and I'm, I'm very encouraged. I hearken your words. Dr. Dawn Opal, the General Counsel and Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Food Bank Council. She's our guest and our leading guest, we'll say. And, um, and in this room, God dang it, she is the smartest person in the room. And, well, <laughs> actually most rooms that I'm in with her for sure. <laughs> so, you are too kind. Yeah. So, hey, it's it's great to have you. Thanks for making the trip down to the studio today. Jerry and I are back in just a moment to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan.
Welcome back, Jerry, Dr. Dawn Opal. How much value has she added to our work? In numerous ways, and I and I have to say we couldn't be happier. And it and it is a sign of how we're progressing in in this work, right? And we we knew when we started this radio show four years ago that we were going to be headed down the path to bringing more and more experts to the table. Dawn has been one of our best, and and we love her and we appreciate her, and uh, you know. Uh, we continue to evolve because of the great work that she does. Well, I would encourage everybody, since she is our leading guest on the show, to go back to foodfirstmi.org, our website that hosts all of our shows there. And, um, and you can search for Dr. Opal, and you can find all the shows that she's done with us. And there was a show particularly coming out of the pandemic, Jerry, that we did where we talked about Dawn's contribution and, you know, uh, her brilliance and her insight, her uh, experience, all of that. But really what separates her was the passion she had, particularly for a group of seniors in the pandemic that didn't have access to food from any of the normal channels. That was really not in her job description, but she would not let it go. And she organized, worked with gleaners and East and other food banks, even Consumers Energy to make sure that people seniors in rural and urban communities that didn't have access to food got the food they needed. And I think she saved lives by doing that. Yeah, I I am quite sure, quite sure. Well, it's time for a little food for thought. Since knowledge is power and is powerful, the more we know, the more we can discern, discover, and develop ideas to work together to create positive solutions to complex problems. Using data, analytics, research, projects, programs, and partners are all a part of the Food Bank Council's scientific approach to creating a food-secure Michigan. We are honored to be leading this work here in Michigan. But here is what we know so far. We know that we don't know enough yet to solve the problem in its entirety. But what we cannot do is nothing. Even if we don't know everything we need to know, our bias must be towards action. Because feeding people today means we have the opportunity with enough knowledge to create a food secure Michigan tomorrow. We'll start by putting and keeping food first with our cross-sector collaborative partners, Food First. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.